Are we on here? Good morning. Happy New Year to everybody. Um, a, a programming note uh, for uh, those of you who never bothered to read the bulletin. Uh, do that because next week we will have a guest, Rabbi Ron Shulman, who is the senior rabbi at uh, Chizikamuna, which is the other megagogue down by the Beltway. We had Steve Schwartz from Beth L here over the summer, and uh, Ron Shulman is the senior rabbi of the other large conservative synagogue uh, down by the Beltway. The Chizikamuna is on Stevenson, and uh, Ron is a, a great guy. We're uh, privileged to have him with us. It would not be a bad idea, in general, if you came to church on Sunday having read the week's Torah portion. Um, It would especially not be a bad idea if you showed up next week having done that to give Ron the mistaken impression that we are actually literate (laughs) and that this reputation evangelicals have of being Bible people actually is true. Uh, but, but uh, it, you know, it's funny, uh, Ron, Ron was on the, the trip that uh, we took to Israel in November. Uh, some strange things happen when you get a bunch of clergy together on a bus, uh, all punchy uh, from, from a long plane ride. And uh, somebody suggested it might be funny if we took Steve Schwartz, the aforementioned rabbi at uh, Bethel, and uh, tried to baptize him in the Jordan Steve then suggested it might be funny if uh, somebody circumcised me, uh, which put an end to the baptizing talk. And when I mentioned that uh, being born in this century, the uh, deed had already been done, he said, oh, no, that's okay. We still have the Hatafat Dambrit. And uh, I said, bless you. He said, that's uh, a ritual drawing of a drop of blood when somebody has, in fact, already been circumcised as an infant, uh, when they convert to Judaism and have to undergo uh, the ritual of uh, the drawing of a drop of blood to make it count. So I held my tongue after that one. But uh, this, is, this is well in mind for our Torah portion today as we pick up the story at the beginning of the book of Exodus Uh, We have uh, Israel in Egypt. As you may recall, Israel went down to Egypt because there was a famine in the land where God had led them. Joseph, the uh, son of Jacob, whose name later became Israel, Joseph had been sold into slavery, but God had in fact set the whole thing up so that he could rise to a position of power and influence in Egypt such that he was able to take care of his family when his family was in need. And Joseph got them all set up. But the problem was that uh, there arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. As we start the story in Exodus, some time has passed, and it seems there's been a change of administrations, there's been a change in regime, partisan shift in the leadership of Egypt. And the new Pharaoh has no interest at all in these descendants of Joseph. And whatever promises may have been made in the past, whatever arrangements may have been set up to protect this people are not going to be binding. So what we find out is that the Israelites, having become exceedingly numerous, 
began to present themselves in the eyes of Pharaoh as a threat. So he says, well, we're going to have to deal shrewdly with these guys. And so what he did was he put slave masters over them, set them to forced labor. They built Python and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the writer of Exodus tells us, the more they multiplied and spread so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked them ruthlessly, made their lives bitter with hard labor and brick and mortar, with all kinds of work in the fields and all their hard labor. The Egyptians used them ruthlessly. And what's more, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, gives you an indication, by the way, of who the writer of Exodus thinks is important. The king of Egypt is not named, but these two Hebrew midwives are. He says, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it's a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let it live. Midwives, however, feared God. They did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives, asked them, What have you done? Why have you let these boys live? Midwives answered Pharaoh, Well, these Hebrew women, they're not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous. They already give birth before we can get there. Evidently, Pharaoh bought it. So God was kind to the midwives. The people increased and became even more numerous. And because those midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. And then Pharaoh, realizing that this wasn't working, gave the order to all his people, all the people of Egypt, were commanded, every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. But let every girl live. And some of the ancient texts say every boy that's born to the Hebrews But clearly, Pharaoh is taking decisive action. Well, there's a man of the house of Levi, married a Levite woman, who became pregnant and gave birth to his son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Well, obviously, that's only going to last so long. So when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket, coated it with tar and pitch, and she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. And his sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Now, in some ways, this is kind of an old story, right? I mean, we've got, you know, Romulus and Remus raised by wolves. You've got the story of Oedipus left out and, uh, to expose. You, you have the, the hero exposed or left to die as, a, as an infant who then has this, uh, this, this uh, humble upbringing and then later on comes into his own, right? We get this all over the ancient world. Except it's all reversed here. Here, Moses is born in humble circumstances. He's not the king. He's not the prophet. He is just this Jewish kid. And he isn't raised in obscurity. As we find out, he's going to be raised in the palace of Egypt, in the house of Pharaoh. As Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the riverbank, She saw the basket among the reeds, and she sent her slave girl to get it. And she opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. Well, this is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Now, how did she know he was a Hebrew baby? Did he have, like, a tattooed on his forehead? What? Yeah. Some people say, well, it was because of the 
unique cloth that the Hebrews used to swaddle their babies. No. 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 She opened up the basket and she found out right away that this was a Hebrew baby. And you remember, the reason for this whole circumcision thing goes all the way back to God's covenant with Abram. Back in in chapter 17 of Genesis, right? When Abram's 99 years old, Yahweh appears to him and says, I am El Shaddai, walk before me and be blameless. I'm going to confirm my covenant between me and you, and I will greatly increase your numbers. And God gets to do that, by the way. The rest of us, we have to say between you and me, because you put the other person first. God doesn't have to do that, because he's God. Remember that. It's going to be important later. So God says to Abraham, after you, as for you, having renamed you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, the covenant you're to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You're to undergo circumcision. It will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who's eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household and those bought with money from a foreigner, those who aren't your offspring. Whether they're born in your household or whether you bring them in, they all need to be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. And any uncircumcised male who hasn't been circumcised in the flesh is going to be cut off from his people. He's broken my covenant. This seems to be very very important to God. And some commentators think that this particular type of marking is important. You know, I mean, it could have pierced his ear, could have gotten a tattoo. Is in, in part, this may be important because, of course, the promise to Abraham was one of what? That Abraham would have many descendants. This is especially notable since Abraham was 99 when God makes this covenant with him. I mean, it's already going to be rough for a 99-year-old guy to have descendants, and now God's going to do this to him. But the truth is, it's a reminder to every man of the Hebrews, several times a day, every woman who's married several times a week, that they are part of a covenant community, that they are part of a people set apart, that they have a unique relationship with the one true God, that they are bound to him. So Moses is raised in the house of Pharaoh. And then if you've seen the movie, you know, one day after he'd grown up, he went out to where his own people were, watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that, seeing no one. He killed the Egyptian. He buried him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. And he asked the one who was in the wrong, well, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, You're not the boss of me. What, are you thinking of killing me like you killed that Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid, and he thought, well, clearly word has spread. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he did try to kill Moses. But Moses got up out of there, went off to live in Midian, several hundred miles to the east. As it turns out, he manages to win the favor of the local priest of Midian who gives him his daughter Zipporah in marriage. And Zipporah gave birth to a son. Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become an alien in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. 
The Israelites groaned in their slavery and they cried out. Their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And God heard their groaning and he remembered that covenant that he had cut with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Realize at this point the Israelites have been enslaved in Egypt. They have been in Egypt for generations. They have been enslaved for generations. They are not only enslaved, they are enslaved to one of the world's leading superpowers. And it's ironic in a way, because if you remember, what was Joseph's strategy for maximizing the wealth and power of the Egyptian regime? When there was famine, he sold people food. When they ran out of money, he took their land. When they ran out of land, he took them. People sold themselves into into a vassal status. They became serfs. And so it wasn't much of a step from there to being outright slaves. If you're part of a foreign race, you're part of an unloved people. This is the nation that had been promised a land of their own, that had been promised a unique role in history that were to be a light to the nations, right? That God was going to bless them so that they would be a blessing. And here they are in Egypt, slaves. The lowest point you could imagine. But God looked on the Israelites and he was concerned about them. So one day when Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, He led the flock to the far side of the desert, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there the Malach Yahweh, the angel of Yahweh, appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. Moses thought, this i got to see. So Yahweh, when he saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, bush, Moses, Moses. Moses says, here I am. Don't come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Yahweh said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. And to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The cry of the Israelites has reached me. I've seen the way that the Egyptians are oppressing them. So, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, up out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. God said, I'll be with you. And this is going to be the sign to you that I'm the one who sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you're going to worship God on this very mountain. Moses said to God, okay, so let's say I go to the Israelites and I say, hey, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, yeah, well, what's his name? And then what am I going to tell him? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. 
God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. So go, get the elders of Israel together and say to them, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he appeared to me and he said, I have watched over you and I've seen what's been done to you in Egypt. I promise to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Look, Moses, the elders of Israel will listen to you, and then you and the elders are going to go to the king of Egypt and tell him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to Yahweh our God. Not, not unknown at the time. You would have people who would be allowed to go off on religious pilgrimages to celebrate certain festivals. The, the regimes knew this was a way of, of keeping people placated. But I know, God says, that the king of Egypt is not going to let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. And guess what? My hand's way strong. So I'm going to stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. And after that, he'll let you go. I'll make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward these people so that when you leave, you're not going to go empty-handed. Every woman's going to ask her neighbor, any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, and you're going to put them on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. Moses answered, well, what if they don't believe me? What if they don't listen to me? Well, what if they say, what, Yahweh didn't appear to you? Yahweh said to him, what's that in your hand? The staff. Yahweh says, well, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake. <laughs> and he ran away from it. <laughs> Yahweh said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out, took hold of the snake, and it turned right back into a staff in his hand. So this, said Yahweh, is so that they may believe that Yahweh, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to you. And then Yahweh says, here's another trick. Put your hand in your cloak. So Moses put his hand in his cloak. And when he took it out, it was all white and scaly like snow. Now put it back, he said. So Moses put his hand back. And when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then Yahweh says, so if they don't believe you or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, that one should do the trick. But if they don't believe those two signs are listening to you, then take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to Yahweh, Oh, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I'm, I'm slow of speech and of tongue. You could read that as, I stutter. Yahweh said to him, Who gave man his mouth? Who made him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? It's, is it not I, Yahweh? Now go. I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to say. And Moses said, Lord, here am I. Send somebody else. <laughs> then Yahweh got really ticked off. His anger burned against Moses. He said, okay, what about your brother, Aaron, the Levite? 
look, I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you. His heart will be glad when he sees you. You're going to speak to him. You're going to put words in his mouth. He's going to be your mouthpiece. I'm going to help both of you speak. I'm going to teach you what to do. He'll speak to the people for you. It's going to be like he's your mouth and if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so that you can perform the miraculous signs. Don't leave that behind because the thing with the snake is a good trick. People are going to dig that. So Moses goes back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and says, So let me go back to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, Go, I wish you well. Yahweh had said to Moses in Midian, You can go back to Egypt now because all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons. Evidently he had had another son since Gershom was born. We learn later his name is Eleazar put them on a donkey, and he started back to Egypt, and he took the staff of God in his hand. Yahweh said to Moses, Now when you return to Egypt, make sure that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I've given you the power to do. But look, I'm going to harden his heart so that he won't let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, This is what Yahweh says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go, so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go. I'm going to kill your firstborn son. And then we get to one of the strangest passages in the entire Bible. I originally wanted my Old Testament professor to come and preach this morning. And when he found out the text I wanted him to preach on, he said he had to be out of town with family. (laughs) This is stranger than strange. And, and, and the, you can tell that, it, that it, people have not known what to do with this since time immemorial. The, the earliest translations of this passage are all over the place. One of the problems is it's full of pronouns. And, and your translation may kind of fill them in. At a lodging place on the way, Yahweh met him and was about to kill him. Your translation may say Yahweh met Moses. It just says Yahweh met him and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife and cut off her son's foreskin and touched his feet with it. We don't know whose feet they were. Were they Moses' feet? Were they the son's feet? And were they really feet? I mean, feet is often a euphemism in the Old Testament for another part of the body. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So Yahweh let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. Over the years, people have come up with all sorts of explanations for what was going on, and most of them are just wild guesses. Some say that Moses was still liable for the blood of the Egyptian he had killed, and so that somehow this circumcision would have propitiated God But most of the older rabbis and the Christian commentators take the view, and I think this makes the most sense, that for some reason Moses had not circumcised his son. Presumably here it would have been his second son, Eleazar, but it could have been Gershon. And that because Moses had not been faithful to uphold the terms of the covenant, God was setting out to kill Moses. 
And of all people, and we see this all the time, but we saw this on Christmas Eve when we looked at the genealogy of Jesus. You've got all these sketchy people in his background. Here you've got Zipporah, who's this Midianite daughter of a priest. She's a foreigner. She's the one who's got enough sense to know what needs to get done. She's the one who grabs the flint knife, takes care of business, and ensures that Moses is going to be left alone by the Lord. And as I'm reading this, and as I'm thinking about this, and as I'm meditating on and as I'm just trying to figure out what on earth is going on here. My daughters and I began to read The Silver Chair, the fourth book in the Narnia series that uh, C.S. Lewis wrote. And I encountered this passage that suddenly sort of made this make a little more sense to me. We've got uh, Rachel Jones is going to help us with the reading here. Anne Jones is going to be the narrator. And Craig is their escort, evidently. Oh, Craig is holding the microphone. Crying is all right in its way, while it lasts. But you have to stop sooner or later, and then you still have to decide what to do. When Jill stopped, she found she was dreadfully thirsty. She'd been lying face downwards, and now she sat up. The birds had ceased singing, and there was perfect silence, except for one small, persistent sound, which seemed to come a good distance away. She listened carefully and felt almost sure it was the sound of running water. Jill got up and looked around her very carefully. There was no sign of the lion, but there were so many trees about that it might easily be quite close without her seeing it. For all she knew, there might be several lions. But her thirst was very bad now. She plucked up her courage to go and look for that running water. She went on tiptoe stealing cautiously from tree to tree and stopping to peer around her at every step. The wood was so still that it was not difficult to decide where the sound was coming from. It grew clearer every moment, and sooner than she expected, she came to an open glade and saw the stream, bright as glass running across the turf, a stone's throw away from her. But although the sight of the water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, She didn't rush forward and drink. She stood as still as if she'd been turned into stone, with her mouth wide open. And she had a very good reason, for just on this side of the stream lay the lion. It lay with its head raised and its two forepaws out in front of it, like the lions in Trafalgar Square, and she knew at once that it had seen her, for its eyes looked straight into hers for a moment, and then turned away, as if it knew her quite well and didn't think much of her. If I run away, it'll be after me in a moment, thought Jill. And if I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyway, she couldn't have moved as she tried, and she couldn't take her eyes off of it. How long this lasted, she couldn't be sure. It seemed like hours And the thirst became so bad that she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by a lion if only she could be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. 
If you're thirsty, you may drink. They were the first words she had heard since Scrub had spoken to her on the edge of the cliff. For a second, she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. And then the voice said again, If you're thirsty, come and drink. And of course, she remembered what Scrub had said about animals talking in that other world and realized that it was the lion speaking. Anyway, she'd seen its lips move this time. And the voice was not like a man's. It was deeper, wilder, and stronger, a, a sort of heavy, golden voice. It didn't make her any less frightened than she'd been before, but it made her frightened in a rather different way. Are you not thirsty? I am dying of thirst. Then drink. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed into its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything if I, come, if I do come? I make no promise. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she'd come a step nearer. Do you eat girls? I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms. The lion did not say this as if it was boasting, nor as if it was sorry, nor as if it was angry. It just said it. I daren't c come and drink then. Then you will die of thirst. Oh, dear, Jill said as she came a step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen his stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing that she had ever had to do. But she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. Before she tasted it, she'd been intending to make a dash away from the lion the moment she'd finished. Now, she realized that this would, on the whole, be the most dangerous thing of all. See, if this is one option among many, then it, it does seem a little unreasonable for a god to demand something like circumcision, doesn't it? Right? I mean, you might want to pick something else. But if there is no other stream, if you are enslaved and have no way out, if your sentence is death, and that is not going to be commuted except by somebody rescuing you. And perhaps you need to look at it a little bit differently. It's easy for us, isn't it, especially in the day and age we live in, to think about God as one of many attractive religious options. It's easy for us to think about Jesus 
as somebody who came, was a good moral teacher, said some nice things, died a pretty nasty death due to some awful misunderstandings. And everybody would be a lot better if they would just sort of pay more attention to the nice things he said. Maybe not the stuff about him actually, you know, being God and having to die an atoning death for our sins, but the stuff about loving each other. But it seems like God doesn't want to give us that option, does he? God is not hesitant to say to Jill Pohl, Aslan is not hesitant to say, if you're thirsty, you may come and drink. But if you don't, then you will surely die of thirst. And if you're going to try to find another stream, you're going to find yourself disappointed. I mean, when we look at these stories, we look at this crazy scenario where God is going to have to take his people out and not to give away too much of the story. There's the whole thing with the parting of the Red Sea coming up. He calls his people to do some pretty wacky stuff. Very hard to understand. And he lays a whole lot of pain on Egypt. Just in the second Torah portion we have today, we get the plagues of the Nile turning to blood, the plague of frogs, the plague of gnats, the plague of flies, the destruction of livestock through plague. We have hail. And you think, oh, boils. Let's not forget those. Those are fun. You look at these and you think, boy, that's really harsh. Don't you? You look at that and you just think, you know, isn't there a nicer way that God could have gone about doing this? But God doesn't seem interested in doing that, does he? And again, if we look at that from the perspective of what we might think is fair and what we might think is right, what we might think is good, the way we might like to do things, then we look at that and we think God's being horribly unfair. But the only reason we would think about that that way is because we don't understand the stakes. The main metaphor that the writers of the New Testament use when talking about our deliverance from sin is that of the Exodus. So we talk about getting saved. We've got to get saved from something worth getting saved from, something we need to get saved from, something we want to get saved from. If we don't believe that there's something we need to get saved from, then we can look at a variety of religious options. But if, in fact, we are in the position that God says we are in, if we are slaves not to Egypt but slaves to sin, if we are people who need to be delivered, if we are people who have a 
destiny that is greater than what we are experiencing, if God has something better in mind for us, but only if we are delivered, then it becomes a lot harder for us to say things like, well, I could never worship a God that would do that. You know, if the one God of the universe who has revealed himself to Israel and in his scripture and in Jesus Christ and through his spirit in the church, if, his, if, if that one true God has demanded something and you say, well, I couldn't worship a God that would demand that, then you have decided what kind of God you're going to worship. That is called idolatry. You've made God in your own image. Because God is God, he can put himself first in addressing somebody. Because God is God, he can bring plagues to demonstrate his superiority to Pharaoh. Because God is God, he can take a stuttering shepherd, not a terribly ambitious one, and have him lead his people out. Because God is God, he can do all of these things the way he wants to do them. And so, as you think about all those resolutions, maybe you've broken a couple already. How about this one? How about this year you treat God like he's God? Not like he's sort of this vague deity off someplace that might or might not take an interest in what you're doing. How about when God makes demands on you, you say, Lord, help me to do that, not, I don't want to. How about when God leads you to take risks to do something that's uncomfortable? You say, Lord, help me to do that, not, I don't want to. So we've got these great stories about people that God delivers, people that God gives a hope and a future to. We've also got these stories about the people who don't cooperate. And they don't turn out very well. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that We don't treat you the way you ought to be treated. We confess that we trivialize our relationship with you. We confess there are times when we see you as one of many people in our orbit that we should get around to spending some time with. We confess that we see your commands helpful suggestions that we might or might not want to take. We confess that too often we look at the things that you call us to as burdens that we unfairly are asked to bear rather than 
the commands of a king. Not to mention the ways that you graciously invite us into participation with what you're doing. I pray, Lord, for myself and for all of us here at New Hope that we would be a body of people who ascribe to you the glory that is due your name. We don't for a minute fail to take you seriously. Pray that you would help us to believe that when you say things like, I am the resurrection and the life, there is no way to the Father but through me. When you say that you are the living water, that we would receive that as an invitation, that we would follow it as a command, that we would do so joyfully, gratefully. Pray that our lives, individually and in our families and here in our community, be different because we treat the one true Lord of the universe like he is. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus.